0: Guilty. It's quite a word, isn't it? I've never had that declared over me in a court of law, but I would think that's a pretty gut-wrenching word to hear in reference to you in front of a judge and a jury and witnesses and a bailiff, your lawyer, the prosecutor, and the gavel comes down, and the word pronounced over you is guilty. That word tends to be a word we don't think of in a courtroom context. I've actually asked a lot of people how they define guilt, and it's almost always defined in psychological terms. How I'm feeling regarding myself. But the fact is, the foundational definition of guilt is not an internal psychological awareness. It is the determination of a righteous judge regarding my legal standing before the law. There are plenty of people who are guilty who don't feel guilty. And there are people who aren't guilty who do. And so our job is not to figure out how we're feeling, but how we stand in relation to the law. When we talk about Jesus and the gospel in Good Friday, the law really matters because we all come in here with, with different apprehensions of our own guilt or lack of it or standing before God. And the fact is, the Bible says in our sinful fallen state, every one of us Is in a guilty condition before God everyone none is righteous and it almost anticipates your thinking now about your saintly grandmother and it says no not one not one we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has gone his own way None of us is righteous before God in our fallen sinful condition. We are guilty. And so tonight, the first thing I would love and I've been praying we'll become more aware of than we were when we all walked in is our guilty condition before God in our fallen sinful state. I know this may not be the reason you came, but it's Good Friday. Maybe you had an inkling that we would go here. Because what makes sense of the cross if there's not guilt to be dealt with? And so whether you feel guilty or not really isn't the question. The question is, do you stand guilty before God? I've actually worked in prisons. I've done ministry in prisons, preached the gospel in prisons, and... I have met criminals who don't seem to feel guilty at all for their crimes. I've met criminals who boast about their crimes, seem quite proud of it, write rap songs about their crimes. And I have met criminals in prison, some on death row. I've worked in a maximum security prison in Central America in El Salvador for a few weeks one summer. And I came to realize that one of the best places to preach the gospel because people are aware of their guilt is in prisons. And I think it's harder for us to understand our guilty, sinful condition in the suburbs of LA where we have pretty nice lives. And so you don't need to be a person guilty of bad crimes to be guilty before God it's our sinful condition I came across this excellent essay by Andre C.O. Peterson and she writes I think reflecting somewhat on her experience that day I don't know how much we should personalize this but listen to this story of a homemaker on the way home from the grocery store These are the thoughts of a woman driving home from Stop and Shop or Stater Brothers on an ordinary day. She conjures three comebacks she could have hurled at Ellen if she had not been caught off guard. She spots the baby shower invitation on the dashboard and schemes a way to be out of town that weekend, then thinks better of it because she has a favor to ask the sender at a later date. She sizes up a woman standing at the bus stop and judges her. She stews over a comment her brother made behind her back and crafts a letter telling him off and sounding righteous in the process. She reviews the morning argument with her husband and plans that evening for the latest installment. She imagines how life would have been if she had married X, a well-worn furrow, this. She magnanimously lets a car merge into traffic and then is ticked off when she doesn't get her wave. <laughs> she resolves to eat less chocolate starting today. well, tomorrow. Somebody rides up the road on the shoulder and budges to head to the head of the traffic jam, and she hates the driver with perfect hatred. She passes the house of the contractor who defrauded her and fantasizes blowing it to smithereens. She passes Audrey, working in her garden, and waves but thinks, if Audrey has chronic fatigue syndrome, I'm a flying Walenda. She glares at a driver who runs a red light in front of her, forgetting that she did the same thing about a mile ago. She checks her slightly crooked nose compulsively in the rearview mirror and reassures herself it isn't too bad. An inner voice tells her to turn off the radio and pray, but she decides that the voice is that of legalism. She brainstorms talking points for her upcoming woman's Bible study lecture on Ephesians and considers how she can improve it and make it better than Alice's talk of last week. She's angry at God because here she is a Christian and broke while her good-for-nothing heathen of a brother is rolling in dough. She thinks how much her, better her life would be if she were beautiful and fantasizes all the bungee-jumping, maggot-pizza-eating fear-factor stunts she'd be willing to subject herself to if she could look like Gwyneth Paltrow. She's one, she wonders how her parents will divvy up the inheritance and how long she has to wait. She rehearses two good reasons why her sister and not she should take care of the folks when they're too old. She thinks about her childhood and counts the ways her parents have messed up her life. The Johnsons drive by and she recalls all the meals she made for them 10 years ago when Lydia had toxemia during pregnancy and bets they don't even remember. Hmm, Did they even send a thank you card? She doesn't think about AIDS ravaged Africa, she doesn't think about the death sentence dangling over millions in Sudan, she doesn't think about missionaries, she doesn't think about martyrs in Kim Jong Un's prisons, she doesn't think about the way she could encourage her children. She pulls into her driveway. Total driving time 17 minutes. And if you were to ask the lady as she rustles parcels from the car what she'd been thinking about on the drive, from town she would say oh nothing in particular and she wouldn't be lying and this is how she concludes her essay imagine people don't think we need a savior (laughs) 17 minutes on the way home from stater brothers a whole lot of sins can pile up you may not be on death row but you need a savior we all do And the sooner we get to that realization, the better off we'll all be because we'll stop scheming for all kinds of ways to solve these problems outside of God's way through his son, Jesus. Listen to this amazing teaching in Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them now it is evident that no one is justified before god by the law for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might become to the Gentiles So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we've been preaching through Genesis that this church and the promise made to Abraham is fulfilled in the person of Christ who fulfills the law with his righteous life and perfect sacrificial death. Jesus takes our place in becoming a curse for us. There are so many other ways but depending on Jesus we strategize to solve our sin problem except for depending on Jesus. Jesus. How do you deal with your guilt? Do you just call it a neurosis from sexual oppression, as Freud would say? Do you say that these guilt feelings associated with religion are the opiate of the people that we just need to get rid of? How about this one? How about just lower our standard? Just emphasize the positive. You're special. You're awesome. Don't ever, let everybody, anybody ever tell you you need a change at all. You're good just the way you are. It seems like every other pop song, that's the message. Lower the standard. Don't be so hard on yourself. We're only human. How about comparing yourself to others? You can always find someone doing worse than you. That's the whole reason reality television works at all. We love to watch people who are at least worse off than we are. In their relationships, in their situation in life. How about deny that there's a standard at all? Live however you want, do what you feel, you be you. And I actually think this one, maybe in our context, is even more deadly. Try harder, solve the problem with moral pursuits. Maybe more positive psychology, more self-help books. That's what I need to do. Try harder. Get up earlier. Make more resolutions. Be a moral person. And actually, maybe this is the most deadly temptation in our context. A little more religion. Just doing more religious stuff more dutifully. The religious option just doing more religious things? Well, the Bible tells us that none of these options work when it comes to guilt. The answer the Bible gives is the one we just read in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the law, from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, "Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's why walking through Isaiah 53, as we beautifully did in our time of sung worship, is so helpful to us. What's the solution? Trying harder? More religious practice? Lowering the standard? More self-esteem? Boosting talk? No. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And yes, our iniquities needed a crushing, because the wages of sin is death. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God puts it this way in Romans 8. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. And listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? The righteousness of God becomes ours through the righteousness of Christ. His sacrificial death is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God that's the solution none of these other options that we so masterfully strategize about to solve our guilt problem our sin problem no the good news of the gospel is that God has done it for us and there's nothing we could do or should do or could possibly imagine could could work He's done it all. We don't need to strategize to come up with ways. He came up with the way in His Son, and it is His Son taking our place on the cross. David Kwan, one pastor, puts it this way Don't forget, for all the agony of Christ's physical suffering, the flesh ripping flogging, the skull clutching thorns, the limb piercing nails, that was but a paper cut compared with the infinite horrors of hell he suffered in his soul while hanging on a cross. Very often we emphasize the physical suffering of Jesus, but this pastor is so right when he says that was nothing compared with the soul-crushing weight of bearing our sins. And that's what he does. Our sin is considered his sin. Holy, righteous Son of God in flesh takes our sin upon himself on the cross. John Stott says this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Indeed, only a man who's prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Oh, I can't emphasize enough how important it is for us to truly see Jesus representing us on that cross and being considered accursed and horrifically sinful in our place on that cross. On that cross, everyone who's trusted Jesus, who has had their sins forgiven by Him, is being forgiven on that cross having their sins accounted as atoned for on that cross. We need to share in the guilt of the cross before we will ever share in the understanding of its grace. That's why the wonderful hymn we started off with tonight says it so beautifully, this gift of love by righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I live. You need to say that I with as much personal force as you possibly can. Because in that death on that cross, Jesus really took your place by faith and then union with Christ. He is truly representing you on that cross. On that cross, the Father is saying, Son of God, Son of man, be Karen Mitchell on that cross. He's saying, Be Tim Greco on that cross. He sang, "Be Rob Lister on that cross, and Jim Clark and Sherry Hera on that cross." Jesus truly represented us individually by name on the cross, and not only us as individuals who've trusted Him and received this forgi- forgiveness, but every single sin of every child of God who've been who's been forgiven by Jesus, everyone. Everyone committed in that 17 minutes on the way home from Stater Brothers is forgiven, is declared by God no longer a source of guilt for you. Every sin on him was laid. Everyone. You are represented as an individual. You're represented in the particular sins you've committed in your life on the way over here tonight included. And the sins of thought and desire that you've committed sitting in this sanctuary tonight. Jesus dies. So the judge brings down the gavel and says, not guilty. Every time. Every time. Every sin. No matter what the sin. Rick Amach, a pastor from Wisconsin, wrote this years ago. Jesus hangs between earth and heaven and our sin is put on his shoulders. Our rebellion to God's righteousness demands, righteous demands are blamed on him as he takes our place on a cruel cross, filthy with bloody dirt on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The father speaks, son of man. Why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory. You worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You're a greedy, lazy, gluttonous slanderer in gossip. You're a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your homosexual passions and for dressing in modestly and lusting after what's forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasures. You hate your brother and murder him with bullets of anger fired off from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal in slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor and put on a cloak of outward piety. But inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. You're a hypocrite. You're lukewarm. Easily enticed by the world, you covet and you can't have, so you murder. You're filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin and are too proud to even call it sin. You're never slow to speak, and you have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading people astray. Son of man, you mock your parents. You have no self-control. You're a betrayer who stirs up divisions and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief, an anxious coward. You don't trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife. You're a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and you crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. The list of the sins goes on and on, and I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust for you and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup, and Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He drowns every drop of God's hatred of sin, mingled with his wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. All-powerful hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. All-powerful wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The Father can no longer look at his beloved Son, his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He diverts his gaze... Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus pushes himself up again and cries, It is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God laid on Jesus as he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. It's six o'clock Friday evening. Jesus finds one more surge of strength, sets his torn feet against the spike, straightens his legs, and with one last gasp of air cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. The merciful centurion sees Jesus' body fall forward and his head drop low. He thrusts his spear up behind Jesus' ribs, one more piercing for our transgressions. And water and blood flow out of his broken heart, in that moment, mountains shake, rocks split, veils tear, and tombs open. The merciful centurion looks up at the lifeless body of Jesus and is filled with awe. He drops to his knees and declares, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Mission accomplished. Sacrifice Accepted. If we never come to terms with the depth of our guilt, that will never make any sense to us. But if we know how much we need a Savior, that will make as much sense as anything we've ever heard. Who could ever think we could solve our guilt and sin problem ourselves? It had to be God. He's the one we've offended. He's the righteous judge. He's the lawgiver. He alone can satisfy the righteous demands of His law. And He has done that in extravagant and lavish and costly grace and sacrifice in His Son. Oh, don't spurn God's gracious provision for you in Jesus either because you've never trusted Christ in that sort of forgiveness or because maybe you have, but then have gotten on with your own self-help approach to the Christian life, which is not the Christian life at all. Oh, let's experience this Good Friday with a deeper sense of our need for forgiveness than we've ever had before, but with a deeper sense of how much we have been forgiven than we ever have now Good Friday is not the end of the story there's still some work to be done to bring this work of redemption to its wonderful, wonderful conclusion but let's ask God to bring us into the reality of Jesus in our place with both a sorrow for sin that is deep in a renewed sense of gratitude and amazement at how loving and gracious he is because each of us who've trusted him and each sin we've ever committed has been declared not guilty. Father, help us. Forgive us for all the ways we strategize to solve our sin problem ourselves. What foolishness. Free us from that sort of self-deception that we're all tempted toward and give us a deeper realization of the good news of Jesus Christ, this good news of great joy that Jesus has taken our place. And we pray this in the name of the crucified Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. Amen.